Welcome to The Dark Divide, a podcast that takes a seat, dangles its legs over the edge, and stares into the abyss. This is the story of the Weiss supermarket shooting, part two. It's 7.48 p.m., and you're perfectly on time for your night shift at the local supermarket. There's still a few hours left before the store closes, but as usual, the last large wave of customers are already packing their grocery bags into the trunks of their cars as you arrive. It's the same thing every week. Another quiet Wednesday processing orders with your other four co-workers. Uneventful, to say the least, but it's easy work, and you get to listen to music the whole time. You head through the back doors into the bright orange crew room, boasting local football pride with its Go Tigers on the wall in white lettering taller than you. You make small talk with the employees who are heading home while you toss your belongings in your storage locker. Even though you don't work the same shift, everybody knows each other here. It's just that kind of town. There's a small order of pet supplies to be priced and shelved, your boss says. You grab your label cart and head to aisle 18 settling in for another boring night. Sometimes, when things feel slow, you play this game with yourself. A certain number of songs, and you get to look at your phone and check the time. It just makes things go faster until your break. That's honestly the highlight, when you and another coworker hang out in the back room over instant noodles and pack lunches, talking about the current details of your lives. You've got about three more songs to go until you hear what sounds like a sharp clap in the air. And another. Maybe one more? It's obviously not your music, so you pull out an earbud and turn to ask your coworker if they heard something funny, just in time to see the shape of them lifelessly tumble to the floor. Your mind stuck still. Your thoughts wandering towards her manically while your body stays unmoving, and suddenly you see it appear from the end of the aisle. A figure? The shape of a gun? No red shirt, but you know them. No. This can't be happening. Your eyes meet. This is it. And then they're gone. Swiftly, towards the other side of the store. It's time to run. But where? Andrew had been observing everyone's behavior, specifically on Wednesday nights, for weeks. It was going to be difficult to have everything ready in time, but it was doable. Andrew wanted to wait until later in her shift, maybe sometime around one or two in the morning. That would give her time to have everything in order, get amped up for what was about to happen. But after observation, she soon realized it would be impossible to block exits during that time without anyone seeing. Kristen and Victoria were usually on their lunch hour in the break room, and this was also around the time when her boss Brian would be finishing up some orders and heading back there to toss out empty boxes and take a break. Somebody would see wooden pallets as high as Andrew's chin blocking numerous exits, and then what? I mean, it wasn't like she would be gearing up until after. 
But even if it wasn't exactly wrong to be blocking exits, she also had no idea what she would say to explain herself if she got caught. Even if they didn't see, Victoria and Kristen would be heading home at three. Soon after, Terry would be finishing up, and Brian would remain in the back manager's office for the rest of the shift. By then, it would be too late. No. She would have to do it much sooner, when everyone was guaranteed to be out on the floor. She needed time to gather as many mini propane canisters and boxes of lighter fluid into a shopping cart as she could. Andrew wasn't able to gain access to the larger propane tanks that sat in a cage near the manager's offices, so whatever this could set off would have to be good enough. Later, during the shooting, the explosives would fail to go off, but it didn't matter. At this point, Andrew was a walking powder keg, bringing all her violent fantasies to life. She would also need time to put on eyeliner and share her files online. Even though she estimated this whole procedure would only take about 10 minutes, she needed that 10 minutes to be absolutely and totally hers. There were five main exits in total to worry about. The bakery, which she would block with her car. That room was just an empty kitchen for the staff, so trying to power jack a load of pallets into there was too risky. There were three other back exits, including a set of chained-up receiving doors to which only Brian had the key. The chances of anybody else thinking to run there were slim. And lastly, the main entrance. Andrew didn't plan on blocking this, but after realizing the possibility of people getting away was actually real, there was no harm in taking that extra precaution. A couple stack pallets would do, just something to keep a person from being able to reach the knob to release the lock. Hide-and-seek was a game Andrew didn't schedule time for. I'm 100% sure that Victoria's gonna die. I just, it's like I know that she's gonna die. Kristen, pretty sure she's gonna die. Like, the only people I could see surviving is Brian, <laughs> pretty much. Like, I can't see Terry getting out. I don't know. The worst possible thing that could happen besides, like, someone seeing me coming is hiding. I don't have the time to look through, like, five different departments and their back rooms and all that to find people. That's what's gonna suck. I can move damn fast through that store. I can move pretty damn fast. But I don't have the time to look for people. So that's the advantage of having Victoria and Kristen be like virtually like 15 feet away from each other. They're right there. Other than that, it's going to be a wild goose chase. Terry would be cleaning the floor, and by 12.20 a.m., everyone would have pushed their carts out. Brian would usually take his break, or at least, Andrew says, would disappear for 10 to 15 minutes around that time. That's when she would do everything she needed to do online and tie up loose ends. Once Brian returned and headed to aisle one, she would head to the back to block exits, and then it would be time. She had done all the prep, all the planning, and all the math that she could. Everything she dreamed of would come to fruition how fate and Ember wanted it. Five people left for work that night. Only one came home. After seeing her coworker and friend, Victoria, get shot in front of her, Kristen ran and hid behind Register 5, which was a self-serve checkout near the front of the store and main entrance, still very much in wide open space and unprotected. From there, she could see Terry, face down and bleeding on the floor. Luckily, she was able to escape through a barricaded exit and call authorities from somewhere safe. 
By the time they arrived, it was far too late. The bodies of three men and one woman lay waiting on linoleum. The echo of the radio still playing throughout the building. There was blood every place you would never imagine. Bread bags and baby formula, cans of soup and bottles of laundry detergent. The scene of innocent life, fractured. We may never know exactly what happened between 12.20 and the call to 911 that Kristen made at 12.44. And I know this may sound viciously curious, but I was intrigued by Kristen's survival because every article you read makes note of how she locked eyes with the killer before her life was seemingly spared. It makes sense that Kristen would see Terry when she ran to aisle five. Andrew estimated that around that time, Terry would be cleaning the paths of the frozen food aisle with the floor scrubber, which is near direct sight from where Kristen would have been. If she saw Victoria get shot, that means Terry was killed first after Andrew returned from break. Being that blocking the main doors was the least of her concerns, I'm assuming Andrew most likely entered Weiss that way, hurriedly blocking it behind her. She would almost immediately shoot Terry, as he would be right in her line of vision upon entering, and then head to the end of the store where she knew Victoria and Kristen would be closest together, and easy collateral damage. Accounts vary from article to article, but from what I gather, Andrew quickly turned her interest from Kristen and walked towards the bakery, where Brian was sure to be, and continued to shoot. Andrew was well aware of what it would take to get everyone in that amount of time. She'd even written about how she would probably wound people first so she could take her time picking them off one by one. She knew that if someone got away, it would be mere minutes before police were there. Taking all of this into consideration, it's clear she made a conscious decision to not shoot Kristen. Was it her obsession of leaving a witness behind to tell the tale? Or did she think Kristen would be fair game to chase later if she went for Brian first? By this point, Brian would have heard shots, known something was up, been running to an exit, most likely the back where he was closest to. I think Andrew either saw Brian running or, in haste, decided that since Brian was the optimal kill, sparing Kristen was worth the sacrifice. The scenario is haunting because it means Brian was scrambling to get out. With all the hatred and anger Andrew had built up, his pleading bags held no merit. Investigators confirmed that a total of 59 shots, just nine over what Andrew had estimated, were fired. An additional 48 live rounds were found. By 1 a.m., the store lay quiet and still. Even when acts appear senseless, the public is almost desperate to figure out why. But when it comes to Andrew, it seems as if every motive was just another connection inside a very tangled and complicated web. The fact that Andrew was so full of hatred and despair when it came to her gender identity is significant. While we can't diagnose Andrew, it's clear that her gender was a place of deep conflict. The Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders describes gender dysphoria as a feeling of dissatisfaction, anxiety, and restlessness. Those diagnosed are often suffering from severe stress and depression. The discontentment of one's experienced or expressed gender not aligning physically can interfere with relationships, 
work, and even the most mundane of daily activities. Andrew talked about the insecurity of hating her body and not being able to look in the mirror because there was no connection to how she felt and what she saw. She describes herself pulling away socially in high school because she couldn't be herself. She explains that she didn't post photos on social media very often because it wasn't her true form. She didn't mind not eating enough and getting skinny because it made her body feel more feminine to her, while also starving a body she couldn't stand. She would pee sitting down, shave her body weekly, and cross-dress in secret as often as possible. She explained her hatred for men, and a distaste so strong for the male body that suicide would be the only thing to rid herself of that filth. Ultimately, believing she would be a female ghost when she died was the only way she could bear that burden. Eventually, what started off as a tolerable discomfort in her teens had become a fiery, self-hating rage by the time she was 24. Adults with gender dysphoria are at an increased risk for isolation and suicide. A disconnection to self is something many of us, luckily, cannot begin to understand. At the core of you, there's a break that seems irreparable. It drowns you with shame from the inside out. One recent study of 6,450 transgender people in the U.S. found that 41% had attempted suicide. Without any kind of support system in place, it's understandable why Andrew felt like keeping this hidden. Andrew lived in a town with a population of less than 3,000 people, and worked in one with less than 2,000. I think it's safe to say that in small towns like Tacanic, it can feel daunting and terrifying to step out of what's viewed as normal and risk being misunderstood, or maybe even in danger. Even telling her family wasn't an option. They would mock her, think she was a freak. Her mother, Lorianne, once asked, Why don't you want a date? Don't you like any girls? Are you... gay? Andrew hated being mistaken for gay, but more importantly, this exchange portrays a family and maybe even a town where acceptance would be a slow battle that Andrew wasn't up for. On some level, Andrew seemed to understand that gender identity and sexual orientation are not the same thing, because it certainly wasn't for her, but it's not like she could tell her mother that. And honestly, it's not like that detail really mattered. Often, in a town like that, different is different, no matter which way you explain it. The stigma of standing out can be just as dreadful, if not more so, than suffering with the struggles in private. And she couldn't picture herself living past her 20s. She couldn't imagine a future with promise. Not here. Andrew describes a relentless knot of the worst kind of tension in her chest an ache that nobody would ever understand. What's heartbreaking about this is that Andrew might have found places to fit in, ways to process these feelings, and more importantly, realize she wasn't alone. She didn't believe surgery would help, freeing a botched job or looking ugly when living as a woman, but maybe Andrew was underestimating the power of transitioning, whether surgically or socially. But even though it seems that empathy was more something she suffocated in herself than lacked, Andrew was fueled by homophobia, misogyny, and racism. How could she believe in acceptance of herself when there were so many things she could not be accepting of? When you judge the world so harshly, you expect to be judged back. If you don't believe help is out there, you don't seek it. For Andrew, Life was the most hopeless it had ever been. 
but gender dysphoria itself isn't an indicator of a predisposition to violent behavior or mass murder. On the contrary, anti-transgender violence is at an all-time high, and it isn't considered a mental illness like mood disorders. Ultimately, the most important factor is that the symptoms like depression are treated. So whether a culmination of dysphoria or another underlying mental illness was affecting Andrew, she needed help. Throughout the tapes, all of the early and urgent warning signs of suicide are there. Andrew was aware that something was wrong, but refused the support she needed, and somehow always managed to be in a convincingly healthy state of mind to her friends. Granted, Andrew was careful to choose a select few who would be privy to her personal life, even going as far as to only share certain information with certain people. Some knew about her depression, others didn't. Some knew about how she identified with her gender, most didn't. One or two people knew she had a gun, and everyone else didn't. However, there are many tweets and messages to consider notable, and though there is nobody else besides Andrew who is responsible for what happened inside Weiss that night, it's frustrating to read what now seems like an obvious trail. You do have to remember that only a small amount of people were seeing this content. Maybe these tweets alone don't warrant worry in the average 16-year-old girl who's enamored with what appears as a harmless situation. And if you're online identifying as a columbiner like Andrew did, the lines begin to blur between intensity and intent, between delving and danger. However, combining these with the EGS content themes, the fact that Andrew began writing in a notebook, had recently purchased a gun, and often spoke to friends about suicide, it feels like somehow, someone could have done something. Even going back as early as March, three months before the shooting, her Twitter account leaves a chilling collection of sad desperation and sick revenge. March 2nd. I want to go to sleep permanently and never wake up. Anywhere's better than Earth. March 3rd. I'm so totally going to buy a shotgun this year, saw it off, and blow shit to shreds. Hashtag goals. I'll call her Mackenzie. We'll bond, have some drinks, and put slugs through stuff. It'll be fun. I'm not joking. March 4th. Big things are going to go down this year. I just know it. March 24th. There's something you should know, but I can't tell you. But little do you know I already have. March 29th. By year's end, I'll have your head spinning in so many directions that the subtlest thing I've done will make you rethink things. May 1st. June is going to be the biggest month of my life. June 9th marks nine years of Pioneer's EGS Productions. To celebrate, I'm doing something massive. May 31st. I'm going to be dead by the end of next week. June 1st, but it'll be around midnight Eastern time, so if you're nocturnal, hit me up. You won't want to miss this. I'm going to need your guys' help on Wednesday night. I'll have more info on this soon. I need someone to record a brief live stream of me. June 6th, I have so many fucking emotions going through me right now, it's not even funny. I wish I could say it right now, but hopefully you can hang tight for one more day. It's massive news, but it's not good. I gotta tell you all something, and you're not gonna like it. June 7th. 
Tonight is going to be the toughest night of my life. I guess I should finally tell you. Tonight's video will be my final production. I'll tell you why later tonight. There's a lot going on. Tonight's video is 40 minutes long. You'd better watch it from start to finish or I'll murder you. She posted the Columbine suicide photo with the hashtag heroes. Goodbye, humans. I'll miss you. Andrew might have chalked all this up to EGS, but many of these statements obviously break character and are too serious to be explained away or laughed off. But unfortunately, that's what her closest friends did. And again, as a reminder, Andrew was mostly friends with people much younger than her, who engaged in self-destructive behaviors and were also suicidal or struggling with depression. It's fair to say they may have been too young to understand the gravity of these words, too wrapped up in the fear of losing a friend and betraying someone's trust, or maybe too sick to notice how unhealthy this might be and make a healthy choice about that information. Many people are also unaware of suicide euphoria, a sudden positive change in mood after a person has made the decision to end their life. It's easy to mistake this as a step in the right direction. We already know that Andrew was making unique efforts around the house to appease her parents, so I'm sure she was taking great lengths to reassure people online as well. She even says so herself. By the beginning of June, all the sadness and even the rage was starting to fade away. When people see this, they'll be like, wow, this guy had so much rage and everything. And, and it's like the suicide tapes, you hardly ever see any of the rage. That's because it's mostly it's all just like inside. You don't see it most of the time. I am a very angry person. Believe it or not, I am. But I'm sad more than anything. You know, it's what depression does to you. You have anger and everything, but you also have extreme sadness, and that's most of what this is. And now knowing that I am going to be dead in a week, it's like I feel like excited. You know, like as the date draws closer, I get more and more like frustrated that I'm not gone yet, but at the same time, I get happier and more excited. The only people to really interact with Andrew in those last days were her parents, and given that she worked nights, even those interactions were few and far between. With how hopeful Andrew's parents had been on waiting for a change in their child, they would have most likely viewed this change in behavior with relief, as proof that maybe they were finally getting their message across. They would be wrong. And now each day they wake up to every parent's worst nightmare a life where your child has died before you. It must have been horrifying to discover that your child, once just that delicate baby in your hands, could be capable of such a cruel act. To make space for grief, but only guilt shows up. Devastating to realize you knew them the least that every single thing you were sure of is now undone, beyond recognition. Their lives, frozen in that day, their sorrow shoved down below, their doors and windows locked shut. How do you begin to repent when you unknowingly made mistakes in the shape of three innocent lives? What do you say to them? Those poor parents, those orphaned children, and they themselves stricken with a loss there are no words for. In the foreword of A Mother's Reckoning by Sue Klebold, a book written by the mother of one of the Columbine shooters, 
Andrew Solomon explains it best. The death of someone who has committed a great crime may be for the best, but any dead child is still some parent's vanquished hope. Death had abruptly become a part of Andrew's life in a notable way. After having two classmates die unexpectedly within a year of each other, Andrew became obsessed with the idea of death and dying young. Grief is complex, especially among youth. Losing a peer can be such a significant event in a way that parents or teachers may not even realize. And when the cause is sudden or violent, riding those waves of emotion can be extremely difficult especially at an age where reactionary emotion tends to be at an all-time high. It's important for youth who have experienced the death of a friend or peer to be given space to process their grief. Whether she was offered support about these events or not is unclear, but honestly, it doesn't seem like it. And if she was, she didn't take it. Andrew was both mortified and fascinated. You're not supposed to die when you're a teenager. All of a sudden... Life was breaking the rules. She couldn't stop thinking about them. How unreal it felt. How unbelievable it was. How she was almost so sad that instead she felt numb. She thought about her own death and the obvious reality of it now. These were all normal things for Andrew to be feeling. But with no way to express them and nobody to normalize what she was going through, it makes sense that she began to feel more isolated and set apart from others. The more she internalized, the less she fit in. And as her thoughts became much darker, it felt easier and necessary to keep them to herself. Honestly, the conversations I have with Mackenzie are longer than I've had with anyone within the last few years. I just, I never talk with people, ever. And it's like, well, how could I? Like, how could I talk to my mom and say, you know, this is the zone I live in. I just think about ghosts and death and dying and suicides and killing people and horrific stuff and dark, macabre, morbid stuff. How do you, like, have a normal conversation about that? You can't. By the time she discovered Columbine, Andrew had been suicidal for years, but the new interest would inspire a major shift in her plans. On April 20th, 2017, Andrew recorded an audio segment about Columbine's impact on her life. Even though she was in kindergarten when the shooting took place, it would be a cornerstone of her mission. She wasn't just intrigued by how two teenage boys could pull off such a stunt. She was jealous. Columbine, particularly shooter Eric Harris, was the reason she purchased a shotgun. After watching target practice footage of Harris, she saw how powerful they were. And she couldn't believe that nearly 20 years after the massacre, shotguns are still just as easily accessible, if not more so, than they had been for Dylan and Eric. Sure, she could put her mother's handgun to her temple, but the risk of waking up a vegetable for the rest of her life was terrifying. Until the newfound fascination with shotguns, Andrew had never been sure if she'd ever commit suicide because she couldn't figure out how. Her small town wasn't exactly blooming with skyscrapers to hurl herself off of, and setting yourself on fire isn't a guaranteed death. And a sure death was the only way she'd have enough guts to pull it off. Once she was in possession of her first Mossberg, 
Ideas of an escape route started to form more specifically than ever before in her mind. And after years of trying to make it big as an animator on YouTube, she decided to hunt fame down a different way. She worshipped Eric and Dylan. She imagined online forums and t-shirts dedicated to her legacy just the way it had been done for them. People would finally know her name and give her the respect and praise she deserved. Although most of the lists of major shootings in the U.S. somehow seemed to all miss Randy Stare, she knew the corner of the internet full of like-minded Columbiners would pay attention. She expected people to take the materials she shared and continue Ember's Go Squad. She expected fans. And she wouldn't be wrong. There's already a multitude of YouTube channels, Tumblr blogs, Twitters, and Instagram accounts either acting as if they're Andrew, a new EGS character, or just dedicated to her appearing to be just as grateful for what she left behind as Andrew hoped they would be. I just, I hope you appreciate that, that I'm trying to take the time to show myself for you. You know, instead of just being lazy and just recording audio, you know, because I very easily could have done that. It's pretty much all I intended on doing, but I, uh, I made myself do it, so. Because that's the thing, it's like, you won't see me anymore. This will be like, you won't see what I look like after this, you know? It's... You won't see me anymore. There have been over 300 mass shootings in the U.S., just in 2017 alone. That's almost as many mass shootings as there are days in a year. In 2016, Adam Langford, a criminology professor at the University of Alabama, published his research on the link between the frequency of mass shootings and firearm ownership across 171 countries. The U.S. leads in both categories, with more firearms per capita and almost double the firearm ownership rate than any other country but according to a study in the Washington Post, people killed in mass shootings make up less than half of 1% of the people shot to death in the United States. More than half of gun deaths every year are suicides. The only category of homicide that has been increasing over the last decade is mass murder, specifically public shootings, with a significant undertone of suicide. What makes a mass shooting is a criteria that seems to change as we experience different events. But in a recent study of shootings in the U.S. where four or more people were killed by a lone shooter, nearly half of those shooters committed suicide, by themselves or police. Andrew didn't feel right calling the supermarket plans a massacre because it was only a few people. She would have loved to have a partner in crime to help her collect more souls for Ember. She wanted to choose a location like her old college or even during day shift at the supermarket. That would be a twofold reward terrify people somewhere unexpectedly while going about their daily lives, and collect a high body count. She was disappointed it had come down to this, but having the time to pick people off one by one without being stopped by authorities was more important. And Andrew had said so herself. After killing her co-workers, suicide wouldn't just be the best option, it would be the only option. She wasn't about to get shot by cops, or worse be locked up in a psych ward or spend the rest of her life in prison. Once everybody else was dead, it would be so easy to leave. 
It would seem that mass murder has become, in itself, the most deadly form of suicide. What used to be more of a personal issue has now become a significantly social one. Many factors go into why mass shooters turn their guns on themselves, and the likelihood of suicide or suicide by police grows, with things like each victim killed and each extra firearm brought to the scene. Much of the time, a shooter is acting out of a perceived injustice and wanting to correct that by exerting a violent control over others. In one of her suicide tapes, Andrew explains how she was a good kid, with good grades, who stayed out of trouble and was kind to everyone. So why did everything suddenly go so wrong in 2014? The death of her friends, her totaling her car, her hard drive breaking, her online growth at a standstill, it was bullshit, and someone had to pay. Like many shooters, there was a strong connection in the rage Andrew felt against herself and the rage she felt against others. This is why so often trying to understand motive has a lot to do with location choice and targets. Andrew's decision on the supermarket was a promise of fear to places like Tokanik, a favor to Columbiners, a fuck you to the world, an ode to Eric, and a pledge to Ember. After a mass shooting, there's always a high tension of confusion and opinion. We want to know how someone so seemingly normal could do that. We want a diagnosis. We want to know when this person could have been stopped. We want someone to blame, and we want to know why. Maybe for some, coming to a definitive theory provides a sense of closure in exchange for fear. Maybe it's to further validate whatever problems we personally point our finger at. It is no secret that the divide between blaming different mental health issues versus gun access laws is split nearly right down the middle, with many people feeling so strongly in their beliefs they refuse to budge. It does seem that both sides mostly agree that the two issues are becoming less separated by the day making it almost impossible to tackle one without also addressing the other. Not every person who owns a firearm is a threat, but how do we stop people from accessing guns who are a threat? What happens to a perfectly responsible person who has a gun and slowly becomes a danger over time? It seems like safety procedures put into place for this exact reason have still, so often, failed us. Where do we draw the line between what kind of guns are appropriate for protection and hobby, and which are simply just deadly weapons in the hands of civilians? Depending on who you ask, every answer you get will be different. So where the path to healing and change will take us as a nation is still unknown. One thing, however, can be said for certain. It would seem that the incentive to gain notoriety through terror and destruction is more present than ever. Studies have shown that, in a similar way suicide can be contagious, it's possible that so can mass shootings, which are highly publicized in the media. Some examples of headlines for recent attacks are Most deadly mass shooting in modern time Killer wounds dozen in ultimate rampage Worst massacre in state's history And highest kill count to date To some, these titles are devastating but to others, their records and awards. You won't run short of fear-based articles to read, but often, what may be the most damaging piece of information is right there in photographic proof. 
the name and face of the killer on every newspaper and TV station for sometimes weeks or even months, and then again and again on anniversaries and ritual remembrances where often the most memorable detail is who the killer was. Many articles also cite and name past killers in comparison. If you imagine this portrayal of power in the media being viewed by a state of mind like Andrew's, it's almost easy to understand why she romanticized and glamorized those who have sought out revenge this way. If her life didn't have meaning, her death could. Her suicide wouldn't just be purposeful, it would be a glorified ticket to fame. In many major shootings, there's a theme of fame-hungry quests. Andrew is one of many who idolized and emulated shooters who made a mark in history. How much blame should the media hold for possibly encouraging evil creativity and competition? Even if it is only one layer, it's hard to deny its role in the epidemic and Andrew's plans. She didn't just want to mimic Dylan and Eric. In her wildest dreams, she wanted to outdo them. And she often wondered how she would compare to them and other shooters. How often people post about me on social media after this. For all I know, this story could just be fucking headlines one day around here and then be gone. Might not even become anything for all I know. Eric and Dylan of Columbine were correct in thinking they would leave behind a haunting legacy of followers and copycats. Not only that, but their videos, photographs, and journals would motivate others to create their own empires of preparation. In 2007, the Virginia Tech shooter sent his suicide video to NBC News. That same year, the mall shooter of Nebraska wrote to his mother in a suicide note, Just think, though, I'm gonna be fucking famous. In the 2011 Tucson shooting, the murderer had posted on MySpace, I'll see you on national TV. In 2014, the Isla Vista, California shooter uploaded a video to YouTube outlining his coming attacks and reasons. In 2016, the Orlando nightclub shooter contacted News 13 during the attack to guarantee attention, hoping to go viral. They would all be right. Andrew wouldn't be the only one to share their plans online first, either in vague or obvious ways, but she would be correct in calling it one of the largest and most detailed to date. And unless there's some sort of broken rule or copyright violation, many of these social media accounts of past shooters are still active to this day, including Andrew's YouTube channel, Instagram, and multiple Twitter accounts. In a similar way that parents may miss the mark in teaching their children that bad attention is not the same as good attention, the media often misses the mark when condemning the actions of mass shooters after already rewarding them with the fame they originally sought out. In his 2014 manifesto, shooter Elliot Roger wrote, Infamy is better than total obscurity. I never knew how to gain positive attention, only negative. If this is true, then maybe it would be better for the media to somehow humanize those we view as monsters, to allow personal details to bridge the gap instead of widen it, for journalism to work harder at breaking down the stigma surrounding mental health and suicidal thoughts instead of just providing an us and them mentality, which only promotes more fear and misunderstanding. There needs to be discussion or resources for those who might be reading those articles 
and instead of shaking their heads with empathy, they secretly dream of doing something similar. But the media also faces its own pressures, from ratings, from bosses, from us. There's money to be made, and there's inquiring public to satisfy. Not only that, but naming shooters also has its own ways of helping. For some, it's an important element of giving someone a human backstory. It can prevent misinformation about a case. It can also provide a way to allow the public to come forward with helpful details. And for professionals in the field to track past offenses, which can establish further understanding and possibly prevention. But it would be wise for networks and publications to consider using these details with a new kind of responsibility and caution. Before committing suicide, Andrew killed three co-workers. Terry Sterling from South Montrose. He was 63 years old a boyfriend and father, a grandfather of two grandchildren, and an uncle to several nieces and nephews. I've read that he was friendly and had a great sense of humor. Victoria Brong from Tacanic. She was 26 years old, a sister and daughter, a granddaughter, and a mother to a six-year-old boy. Friends say she was helpful kind and quiet. And Brian Hayes from Springville, a 47-year-old Navy vet who served during Desert Storm. He's remembered as a loving father to a seven-year-old girl, a husband, a son and brother who was extremely devoted to his family. I wanted to say their names again without it just being part of what may have happened during the shooting. It didn't feel right, after paragraphs upon paragraphs of Andrew, to come up so short about these three unfinished lives. Each of them were many things in this life. Their roles in a shooting are the least significant acts compared to the meaningful ways that they impacted others. We don't need proof in black and white ink on dusty paper to know that they mattered. However, not only was there little to no follow-up about the victims, but the headlines about the shooting itself died down in a shorter amount of time than Andrew had spent planning it. What that says about the state of our time and the rate at which these acts occur is disheartening, to say the absolute least. It's important that we don't allow them to become forgotten, as we may find ourselves drifting further and further away from a culture where crime involves a strong focus on its victims and yet I know there's no information that could circumvent this maze of horror. No anecdote that could retrieve what's been so unfairly taken. No matter how much research I do, the sad, senseless tunnel seems to reach no beaming bright answer, no blinding end in sight. For many, there is only the darkness of one fact that matters when it comes to this case. Someone they love is gone forever. Not just lost but stolen. That night totaled a body count of three, but what of the bodies left behind? Every person they knew who needed and loved them. The hundreds affected so raw and deep, sleepless and mourning. 
No detail or diagnosis will justify their sorrow. Nothing we do can breathe life back into a body or change a gravestone to a greeting. I can only hope that with whatever healing is possible, they're able to have life flourish where it seems it cannot. That the weight of a nightmarish truth, which somehow seems so stranger than fiction, can eventually lift to reveal a new layer of strength and most of all, peace. On June 14th, exactly one week after the massacre, members of the community would drive by the supermarket and see a huge sign posted across the front windows that read, To our valued customers, we are working hard to reopen your Tuckanic Weiss. Many people in the town, including the friends and families of the victims, would be disappointed and angry that the store would not be torn down. It's common for the affected community to want to rid themselves of physical reminders. For some people, this was no longer a grocery store. It was a gravesite. But Tacanic is a small place. With a population just over 1,800, the Weiss Market was one of the main to service the region. For as much as the store couldn't afford to lose a customer, it also couldn't afford to lose even one of its 88 employees either. The inconvenience and investment of rebuilding completely would be an impossible sacrifice, but they would do whatever they could to try to make it new, hoping to somehow rid the building of that horrible memory. The interior of the store was gutted, remodeled with an entirely new floor layout. And by July 13th, Weiss would be back in business. Unfortunately, a coat of fresh paint and some new tile may never be enough. Long after a tragedy like this, fear continues to haunt us. And sometimes the scarier places are the ones still standing, uninvolved and untouched by this strange, sad wave of unpredictable assault. A concept which once seemed to hold some amount of rhyme or reason is now haphazard, waiting in between the cracks of the floorboards in our schools, churches, and concert halls. After a succession of nearly back-to-back -back attacks in just the past few years alone, it feels as if nowhere is safe or sacred anymore. There's never a chance to exhale and gather ourselves, to learn whatever lesson is glaring back at us between the lines. And in the midst of paranoia and protection, where is our chance for those fleeting moments of reckless abandon that makes being alive feel like such a gift? How do we muster the bravery to connect? when it feels easier to distance ourselves from the world outside our doors. How and how long do we mourn? And what is our grief supposed to look like? How do we come to terms with our remaining desire for simple happiness, the need to get on with things and wanting life to go back to normal? And what of the victims' families and their friends? Those grandchildren, nieces and nephews, that little boy and girl, and their wide-open futures rolling out before them like an endless ocean. What about Kristen? Those moments of joy that are nearly indescribable, days that are so good without any reason why, times when you're caught off guard with unexpected glee, peppered with laughs of unbridled design. 
That is the world they deserve. A life not held hostage by the past, but instead one better and smarter for it, where they can be taught the importance of calculating a risk, but also that life is meant to be lived with fear as an instrument of instinct and not a weapon against ourselves. To remind them that for every person who commits an unspeakable crime, there are thousands of others full of grace and compassion to nurture a sense of unity and set a new precedent of hope. Maybe we all have to constantly reignite this faith in ourselves. Because the truth is, the more obvious rage appears, the more evident becomes its opposite, resilient with defiance and revolution. If one thing is certain, it is that now, more than ever, we must dare to be courageously and intentionally alive.